Hello, community. She says you're supposed to say hello back. <laughs> good afternoon, community. <laughs> it's like, good afternoon. <laughs> so I'm going to start with a poem that I probably have overused for many, many years. But since there is at least one person in the room who's never heard it, I'm going to read it. If you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills... If you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains. If you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles. If you, you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it. If you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time. If you can take criticism and blame without resentment. If you can relax without liquor. If you can sleep without the aid of drugs. Then you're probably a dog. <laughs> Okay, the laughter meant it was new to several of you. <laughs> yeah. The author is anonymous. Um, I can't track it down. So um, this is the spirit in which I will give the talk today. And it's the spirit of how do we judge ourselves and try to be perfectionists, try to be perfect? How many of us, anybody here wish they were perfect? A few people, a couple of brave people raise their hand. Anybody judge themselves? <laughs> Anybody judge anybody else on the retreat? <laughs> anybody wish something was different about themselves? Yeah. So the talk is going to be on um, one of my favorite topics, which is the topic of self-compassion. How we can work with the self-hating voices and the self-judgment and self-criticism. And also how it's connected in some way to this natural awareness that I've been talking about over the last, the last um, few days and what, we've been, what we were practicing today. And what I've seen over the years as I teach these retreats and my colleagues see the same is this kind of almost epidemic of unkindness that is in the culture and um, it's in multiple cultures. It's not just in the dominant culture. I hear about it in people from all different backgrounds. Um, and it's self-hatred, self-judgment, comparing, perfectionism. I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm not. It, it's, it's, in a whole, it's actually even they find the same thing in baboons. Baboons compare themselves to each other. And they, if one baboon is more dominant, they find that other baboons, the, the, um, the, the, they, they, they get envy. envy so like a very dominant baboon will incite envy. And then the ones with envy have, lots of, have higher blood pressure than baboons that don't. So I don't know if that makes you feel better. <laughs> but what it, it makes me think, wow, we share so much of our genetic material with baboons that maybe there's something like ingrained in us to compare and judge and assess and evaluate. And that evaluation sometimes goes outward and sometimes goes inward. And most people I know struggle with this. I mean, not everybody. It's not everybody's issue, but it's a, it's a lot of people. I mean... Oh, I'm tempted to, to read this one, but you'll think I'm from Los Angeles, which I am. <laughs> this one is um, Oprah talking to Meryl Streep and Julianne Moore and Nicole Kidman. <laughs> so here's what, here's what the greatest 
actors of our time think. Um, where is it? Basically, she, uh, basically, uh, Meryl Streep says when she when she's asked to do a movie, she says, "I can't do this movie. Get me out of it." She says to my agent, and my agent has to say, "You're going to get on a plane and make the movie." And then Meryl says, "Why have you tried to back out of it?" And she says, "Because I say to myself, I don't know how to act." <laughs> Meryl Streep thinks she can't act. And then Oprah says, that's a jaw dropper. Meryl Streep thinks she can't act. <laughs> and uh, Meryl says, yeah, lots of actors feel that way. And Oprah says, but somewhere inside yourself, don't you know that you're the gold standard? And Meryl says, yeah, but does that help? And then Oprah says to Julianne Moore, I've heard from your agent that after every film, you're sure you'll never work again. And she says, at the beginning of a movie, I'm scared. By the middle I'm, middle, I'm doubting my choices. By the end, I'm certain I've ruined the film. Sometimes I even suggest other actors for the parts I'm offered. And then, she's, and then the, the other three go, yeah, I suggest you, I suggest you. And so the, all three of them <laughs> recommend each other because they don't think they can act. Wow. That's a big statement, right? This is just because we're in the celebrity world. Here's another one. <laughs> from... Um, from uh, Amy Poehler, who's on Saturday, who was on Saturday Night Live and Parks and Recreation, is this incredible comedian. And she said, um, <sighs> she says, we all have a tiny, whispery voice. That's usually, and that there's a negative one that comes through in a lower register. It comes through loud and clear. The voice that talks badly to you is a demon voice. This very patient and determined demon shows up in your bedroom one day and refuses to leave. And it's awful and mean and it just takes your breath away. It tells you that you're fat and ugly and you don't deserve love. It sounds like a strangled, seductive version of you. Think Darth Vader or an angry Lauren Bacall. <laughs> the good news is there are ways to make it stop. The demons still visit me often. I wish I could tell you that being on TV or having a nice picture in a magazine suddenly washes all away those thoughts, but really it doesn't. I still wish I were taller or had leaner hands, a less crazy smile. I don't like my legs, especially. I used to have a terrific flat stomach, but now it's kind of blown out after two giant babies used it as a short-term apartment. <laughs> You know, it, this is the territory. It's part of being human, the comparing, the disliking, the I'm not good enough. And, you know, if it's really, it's very intense, right? It's very intense. And you've probably seen it since you've been here. You've seen it coming up. I'm, oh, I'm not a good meditator. That person's doing better than I am. Why did I do that? Maybe it comes up with worry and regret about things that have happened, sadness, grief. You know, if someone were as mean to you as you are to yourself, you would never let them get away with it. But we do that to ourselves, these voices, these voices of self-judgment, self-hatred, of self-criticism. So the good news, is, oh, and I want to distinguish self-judgment from from wise discernment, right? There's a difference between being self-judging 
which is you're bad, there's something wrong with you, and self-discernment where we realize, hey, there's something about me that could change because it's not helping me. Like you wake up in the morning every day late, you sleep through your alarm, and a self-judging voice would say, you stupid jerk, you slept through your alarm again. But a discernment voice might go, oh, wow, I really keep sleeping through my alarm. I need to do better. I'm going to try to do it differently tomorrow. You see the difference? So self-judgment is layered with all this aversion, all this like something's wrong with me. Whereas discernment is important and we need to be, a dis- we need to be discerning. We need to make choices to help, to help improve our lives in some way. And, um, and, and some people think there's a lot of value in self-criticism because if I'm not criti- critical of myself, I'd never get anything done. I'd never get out of bed. I wouldn't be my best. I wouldn't succeed in the world. But there's a difference between that kind of mean voice that drives us to do something versus a voice of seeing ourselves clearly and making a choice to change from that place. So there's been a lot of research done in the last number of years, last really decade, and um, and many of you are familiar with the concept of self-compassion. And I really like how Kristen Neff and Chris Germer define self-compassion. So Kristen Neff is a researcher at the University of Texas in Austin, and Chris Germer is a psychologist based in Boston. And he, they come up with, many of you may be familiar with, the Mindful Self-Compassion Program. What I like about it is they've defined self-compassion differently from self-esteem. Right? There was this whole movement of we've got to bring up children's self-esteem. And so because of that, they, um, you know, that's when good job became part of the parenting vocabulary. Good job, you went up the slide. Good job, you went down the slide. Good job, you went up the slide. You know, I mean, it's like endless. And so now, for those of you who are parents, especially of kids of this generation, you have been told not to say good job. You're supposed to... Uh, <laughs> You're supposed to approve, uh, like, kind of applaud their effort. Oh, you worked really hard to get up that slide. (laughs) However, I'm sure I will find out in another 20 years all the terrible things that I did to my child. It will be because, you know, the fads change and the parenting changes and all that. But anyway, um, self Self, uh, it it doesn't, what they found out with the research on self-esteem is building up people doesn't really work, right? What it does is it leads to two things. You stop believing it. So if you're always being told good job for everything, you start to be like, what? I'm not, you know, that wasn't a good job. Um, But you also then are dependent upon external uh, approval. So self-compassion is different. Self-compassion is the idea that actually we're inherently worthy and that we are fine even with our flaws. We're not trying to be something special and different than we are, but even with our flaws, we can be okay. And the way they define it is being warm and understanding of ourselves when we suffer, fail, or feel inadequate rather than ignoring our pain or beating ourselves up with self-criticism is self-compassion. Self-compassionate people realize that being imperfect, failing, and experiencing life's difficulties is inevitable. So they tend to be gentle with themselves when confronted with painful experiences rather than getting angry when life falls short of set ideals. 
And when they've done the research, and they and other people across you know, many, many universities and such have done the research, and they've looked at what happens to people who cultivate self-compassion, and they find greater psychological health and greater resilience. It's positively associated, so meaning if you have high levels of self-compassion, it's associated with life satisfaction, with emotional intelligence, social connectedness. It's negatively associated with self-criticism, depression, anxiety, and rumination. And it's linked with personal initiative and leading a more fulfilling life. So this is by doing self-report. There's a, there's a mindful self-compassion scale that's used in research a lot these days. So or a self-compassion scale. And, you, and it's like, I don't know, 25 or 28 um, little questions. Do I judge myself? Do I, you know, there are questions that you can take. And you can actually go on their website and take it and find out how self-compassionate you are. If you're interested, it's mindful-selfcompassion.org. So um, there's often, there's, there's only, as far as I could tell, there's only one study looking at self-compassion cross-culturally. And that was a study, although it may have changed since this, but a study looking at Taiwan, the U.S., and Thailand. And they wanted to measure people in each of those countries which had the highest level of self-compassion. So who do you think had the highest level of self-compassion? Thailand. <laughs> Thailand. Um, and they, they attribute it to parenting styles, actually. They say that in Thailand there's a much more kind of laid-back parenting that contributes to higher levels of self-compassion. The lowest? Mm -mm, Taiwan. That's what the study showed, and they, they also attribute that to, to parenting styles. Um, so anyway, this is, it's just interesting, and this research, very, very early research, is just, just because um, oftentimes people ask me, well, does everybody struggle with self-compassion? And I'll say, well, let's look at the research. So self-compassion is made up of three different components, and all of these components we've been doing here on the retreat. The first component is mindfulness. The second component, and that's mindfulness both to just be grounded in ourselves and have a place of refuge and connection to ourselves. It's also mindfulness to work with those thoughts. When those self-hating thoughts arise, we can be mindful of them. It's also, so that's number one. The second component is a recognition of our shared humanity a recognition of our shared humanity. And we've been talking just a little bit about practices where you kind of, you're feeling bad and you just think about the thousands upon thousands of people who are feeling the same type of discomfort in that moment. And you're, ch you're tapping into this shared humanity. And the third piece is um, self-directed neuroplasticity. <laughs> The third piece is, is the cultivation of positive mo mental states and emotional states, which lead to us feeling more love and connection to ourselves. So that's what they say are the three pieces. And I say there's a fourth piece. The fourth piece to me is um, a recognition of our inner goodness. A recognition of our inner goodness. And I'm going to go over all of these, but I will say that um, it's very connected to the natural awareness practice that we did today. So let's take the first one, mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness. How has mindfulness helped us develop self-compassion? 
One is just having a practice where we can reduce stress and come to a place of more and more well-being is just a baseline. But the, the incredible way in which mindfulness can help us with difficult thoughts, and you've seen this, and we've talked about thoughts over the, over the week, you've seen how you can pop the balloon, how you can not get on the train, how you can get off the train when you're on the train, how you can... Um, you know, we've been using different metaphors for working with thoughts. Remember, we're not trying to make you stop having thoughts. We're not trying to create some blissed out state. We're trying to shift our relationship to thoughts so that we bring in more of that quality that we've been pointing to of disidentification. Not getting so lost in the thoughts, not taking them so personally, where we can move from the thoughts and emotions from, uh, move with them from, from um, my thought that's causing such a problem to the thought or the emotion that's moving through me. This is disidentification. So every time you notice a judging thought, and it could be a judging of others or judging of self, you can just label it judging judging. You can even start to count it. Judging one. <laughs> judging 648. <laughs> and it's only 10 in the morning. No, but, but our minds judge. It, it's, it's, it's producing, it's because of conditioning, because of our conditioning. Why? Family conditioning, media conditioning, um, you know, our peers, our schooling. There are all these reasons. And, and then there may be these biological reasons, like, like when I was talking about the baboons. There may be something in our DNA. But, but the, we can start to notice them. And when we begin to count them, when we begin to notice, oh, there's judging. That's interesting, judging, judging, judging. And we begin to have a sense of, oh, they're just thoughts. They're coming and going. We don't have to take them so personally. Many years ago, my friend was meditating on a retreat with me, and she told me this story that she was having all these thoughts of self-judgment, like really beating herself up, really beating. And then she was doing walking meditation outside, and this little chipmunk came along, and she bent down to look at it closer, and it ran away. And this voice in her head said, even the chipmunks hate me. (laughs) And she went to see her teacher, and he said, how are you doing? She said, I'm having a horrible time. I'm so much self-judgment, and I'm so, I'm so miserable, and even the chipmunks hate me. And he looked at her, and he said, even the chipmunks hate me. The sky is blue. And what he was saying in them was, was there's a way to interpret this that I don't want you to interpret as. The sky is blue is a fact. Even the chipmunks hate me is a fact. That is not what I mean. <laughs> what I mean is even this, the sky is blue is just a thought. There's no charge to that thought. How can we shift the chipmunk thought to like the sky is blue kind of thought? It's just a thought rather than having this charge and oh no, there's something wrong with me and chipmunks hate me and my whole life is ruined because the chipmunks hate me or whatever it is. Can it just be a thought that's coming and going, like clouds in the sky? And when my friend got that, like she like really got it, and then she would, every time she had a negative thought towards herself coming into her mind, she'd add, even the chipmunks hate me to it. So she'd say, oh, I'm late for lunch again. I'm really bad at managing time. Even the chipmunks hate me. 
And then she'd start to laugh because it's just like these thoughts, these mind, it's just so, like I said, it's shameless. Our minds are shameless. They will say, think, visualize, hear, feel, anything. So we can notice the thoughts, we can count thoughts, we can, um, we can also use, we can be mindful of when those difficult thoughts arise and we can use a cognit- cognitive approach, like we can, we can then tell the thought, like, not now, or come back later, or back off. You can even tell your thoughts to back off sometimes, especially the really pernicious and mean ones. You can ask yourself, is this true? So when you have a thought, and by the way, it doesn't have to be a judging thought. It can be an anxious thought or a depressed thought or an angry thought. Is this true? Do I really know this is true? Or what part of it is true and what part of it isn't true? I'm not the worst meditator in the room. I'm I'm sure there's somebody worse than me. (laughs) But, But just to really bring perspective and evaluation to it. We can be soothing to ourselves with our, with our, with our self-talk. We can, we can bring in the loving kindness when we notice that we're having these self-talk, this kind of self-talk and we can be soothing and say, it's okay, it's okay, honey. You'll get through it. Bonnie keeps having us like, kind of touch ourselves. You'll get through it. Wow, that was a really nasty thought you thought towards yourself. I'm so sorry. Oh, you'll get through this. Here's one of my favorite little stories. Where is it? Ah. A man observed a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her cart. As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookies and her mother told her no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss and the mother said quietly, Now, Monica, we just have half the aisles left to go. Don't be upset. It won't be long. Soon they came to the candy aisle, and the little girl began to shout for candy, and when told she couldn't have any, she began to cry. And the mother said, there, there, Monica, don't cry, only two more aisles to go, and then we'll be checking out. When they got to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately started to clamor for gums, gum, burst in a terrible tantrum, and the mother patiently said, Monica, we'll be through this checkout stand in five minutes, and then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped to the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began, whereupon the mother said, what do you mean? My little girl's name is Tammy. I'm Monica. (laughs) So... How can we bring that goodness to ourselves with just by noticing that thought and noticing a, a different approach that we can take? I used to teach a lot to teenagers and um, I taught these practices and it's so wonderful when you can teach them when they're really young and, um, and one of the um, girls, Sarah, who is 18, wrote this to me. She said, after practicing meditation for a while... I began to notice those self-hating voices that told me I wasn't thin enough. For years, they've been yelling at me. My thighs have been too fat since I was 11. But lately, I've begun to not take them too seriously. The other day, when I looked in the mirror and a voice said, ugly, I just laughed and said, hey, you're a voice in my head. Now I can look in the mirror and actually like what I see. 18-year-old girl, 
with meditation experience. So this is the promise of how we can work with mindfulness and um, to work with this, this aspect of these thoughts. So that's the first, the first part of it. The second part is the concept of shared humanity. We're not the only one. We're really not. There's so many people all around the world who are struggling in the ways that we are. There's so many people who think that they failed and they screwed up too. So sometimes we think we're the only one. You know, not only do we feel bad about what we did, we feel, or we feel bad about ourselves, but we feel like we're, we feel isolated, like we're the only one. So I'm going to do a little experiment. Some of you have done this with me before, but bear with me. And, um, and this is, we're going to do a little active m- movement meditation. And I'm not going to do it, but I would join you in spirit. And the, the, um, I'm going to ask you to stand up if any of, wait, 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 not yet, if any of the statements I read apply to you, okay? So please stand up if you've ever compared yourself to other people. Okay, good. You can now go back down. This is exercise, by the way. Stand up if you've ever done something stupid. Okay, now just look around and see if you're the only person standing up. Okay, okay, back down. Stand up if you've ever felt inadequate. Okay, so not up to some important task, all right? Okay, she said, can you just keep standing and sit down if it's not true? All right, you can switch to that. Stand up if you've ever looked in the mirror and not liked what you saw. Stand up if you've ever messed up something really important to you. Stand up if you've ever lost someone or something important to you. Stand up if you've ever hurt someone you love. So just take a moment to look around the room and I kind of want you to have a body memory of this. Like what does it mean to be standing here in a room with nearly a hundred people, all of whom have felt these things at one point or another? So just notice that and notice what that feels like inside and maybe just silently offer compassion to all of us. Like, oh, yeah, you've messed up too. You've been in pain too. You've struggled too. And, and I see it and I know it and I have too. So we just take a breath and we can sit back down. And I hope that you will remember maybe next time that this is this that you were here in the midst of this shared humanity that we all struggle in the same ways so the third component is the component of um, of the cultivation of positive emotional states and mental states that help us to bring up bring more love into our being So when we do the practice, we've been having you do loving-kindness practice for the last three days, and there's a reason for that. And that reason is that 
since most of us do struggle with the difficult emotions and we do struggle with self-hatred and self-judgment, that when we can do these practices, they counteract they counteract the conditioning, the negative conditioning that we've had for most of, most of us, have had for our lifetime. And so it's like we, ra- by, by sending kindness to ourselves on an ongoing basis, we kind of raise the level of love inside our being. It's like dropping, we were talking, I think someone was about water dropping into a bucket. Oh, Alex with his glass of water. Right? And you just keep adding more drops of kindness, adding more drops of kindness until finally you look and the glass is full of kindness. And what you used to behave as, the way you used to think of yourself, it changes. Like one of my favorite old stories from some of, many of you are familiar with Sharon Salzberg, who's a wonderful mindfulness teacher. And she told this story of going on a retreat just like this and spending hours and days sending kindness to herself and the entire time she was doing it nothing was happening like she was just like oh this is the most boring thing in the world nothing's happening she's sending kindness sending kindness then she went home and she thought well that was a waste of time and she got home and she went into her kitchen and poured herself a cup of tea and the glass dropped from her hand and the, the mug smashed all over the floor and she said I am such a klutz she said to herself and then the next voice in her mind was, but I love you anyway. And it was like, even though it felt like nothing was happening, something was shifting inside her. Something was shifting inside her. She was learning how to love. And I know, you know, some of us feel like, oh God, I shouldn't be sending love to myself. That is so self-centered. It's so such a waste of time. There's so many people that need love out in the world. And one of my favorite quotes ever is the quote from um, Bell Hooks, the feminist critic, who says, when I talked with friends and acquaintances about self-love, I was surprised to see how many of us feel troubled by the notion, as though the very idea implies too much narcissism or selfishness. We all need to rid ourselves once and for all of misguided notions about self-love. We need to stop fearfully equating it with self-centeredness and selfishness. Self-love is the foundation of our loving practice. Without it, our other efforts to love fail. The foundation of our loving practice. Without it, our other efforts to love fail. I know for myself, you know, I, I, I give this talk a lot because I, it's so meaningful to me because I struggled so much with self-judgment and self-criticism. I mean, I was just, I was really, you know, I shared that. The fir- I shared that the first talk I gave where I was saying, oh, I was, I was always looking for praise and trying to succeed and trying to get an A. And even when I was meditating, I was trying to get an A in meditation and I was like, I, I've just had that, 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 that sense of not liking myself a lot, as a, especially as a young person. And there have been so many times over the years in my meditation practice where loving kindness came to the rescue. And there was one particular time I remember when I was, I had just, were, I'd been working at a nonprofit for about 10 years and I was totally burned out. And I came to Spirit Rock. And I sat a month-long retreat, and I was going to do mindfulness practice, and I started to do loving-kindness, and it just, 
it just something felt so important to me. And I just started to do it. And I spent the entire month sending it only to myself. I didn't send it out to everybody else, didn't send it to the world, didn't try it. My difficult person didn't try anything. I just needed to send it to me. And it was such a healing thing to do for me. It was so healing. And when I lived in the monastery and I found that I worked too hard to, to, be, to be mindful every second and my effort get, got really imbalanced, when I finally came back to self-love and self-compassion, it was like I had to reprogram myself. I had to create this self-directed neuroplasticity. I had to do it, you know? I had to, because my programming, I had to install love, right? I couldn't, my programming was not love. My programming was, you're not good enough. It was really, it was really, I put a lot of crap on myself as a young person. And then over the decades with my practice, over years and years of sending the love, of practicing mindfulness of the voice of the voices that I talked about, of being um, recognizing the shared humanity, and of hour after hour of sending kindness to myself, something began to shift. And I'll tell you, at this point, totally different. Not that I don't sometimes say, "Oh, that was stupid" to myself. Of course, I do. But I would say that the baseline feeling for my being is is much more love than, than the negativity. And it's, um, it's a blessing, you know? It's like to live without those constant self-hating voices. And I attribute this to practice. I attribute this to practice. And, you know, therapy helps, of course, really, really helpful. There's other modalities that help. But the fact that we can change our brain that we can change our mind, that we can change our heart. Wow, this is an amazing, amazing practice. So, so those are the three components that are kind of traditionally thought of as part of self-compassion. So we do, we... Um, but I, but I like a, I like a fourth component, and this component is the component of what I call inner goodness. Inner goodness. So this is the recognition that we are not fundamentally flawed. That we are not fundamentally flawed. I think many of us start from that assumption that there's something wrong with us. But if we can shift perspective to the idea that you may or may not believe. I mean, the philosophers and the, the, the evolutionary biologists and the philosophers and the... They've, everybody's been... And the people in all different religions, they've been fighting about this question. Are humans inherently evil or are they inher- inherently good? I fall in the good camp because that's my experience with practice and that's my experience of working with thousands of students over the years. And that's my experience because it's the way I want to live in the world. Seeing the goodness. Robert Bly often calls it seeing the gold. Can we see the gold in each person? Meaning like, what is so good about that person that you can see? And can we see the gold in ourselves? This fundamental truth about ourselves that we are not flawed, but we are, there's a goodness inside us that's accessible 
and that you have touched into, that you have touched into during this, these five days. Because those moments, and you've talked to all the teachers and you've talked with everyone and you've said, oh, there was a moment where I felt peace or I felt joy or I felt connectedness or I felt ease. And sometimes when we first experience, we don't even know what it is. You know, like we're, we're so used to the negativity that when we feel a moment of peace, we think, my goodness, what was that? But when we can begin to sense it and let it expand and let it be here and rest our awareness in its own natural capacity, rest our awareness in, our na- in its natural state, coming here, coming home to ourselves, it's always available. Then there's goodness. Then the goodness is right here. It's right here for us. It's benevolent. So when I said to you this morning, when I asked you to just kind of just be, and I'm going to ask you to do that right now, just be. Like don't, you don't have to change your posture. You can if you want. Just, just as you're sitting here, just be. Be with me, with this self. This, when, we, when we get lost in the trying to be too much something else, when we, when we get lost in our worries and our concerns and our anxiety, our anger and our rage, we're, we're, we're disconnected from our own goodness, from this natural awareness that's here all the time. So it's like we're this luminous sun shining really brightly. And then the clouds pass over. And the clouds are the clouds of anxiety and fear and self-hatred and comparison and meanness and I'm not good enough and this is terrible and those are clouds those are not the sun they are not the sky they are not able to obscure our radiance our radiant nature and that's what this practice uncovers and that's when we get tastes of it. And then we, you know, our mind gets concentrated. And after four days, when I say, look to it, look to it directly, you can see your own awareness. It's present right now. You can do it. You can do it. And some people, they say, I don't know what she's talking about. That's fine. But just think about those moments of peace or ease. Because I see this, this like our awareness, it's like a multifaceted diamond. It's like a diamond with hundreds of facets and each facet is goodness and kindness and compassion and ease and equanimity and joy and love and you just turn it you turn it and you and that's what shines through and that's what shines through while we're here while we're meditating and those were the the qualities that that Bonnie was talking about last night those qualities that we can cultivate and she gave such you know incredible teachings on how to cultivate and recognize, and I'm just suggesting that we all have these diamonds that have those qualities and they're here for us in every moment. So, when we put it all together, when we put all the pieces of what we're doing here together, we have the makings of a, we, we called this a boot camp the other day, but it's also a boot camp in self-compassion. But we don't want to call it that because it sounds like a drag. Oh, man, I have to be self-compassionate? That's too hard. <laughs> then you don't want to do it. So I don't really call it that. But, but I, just, I just want you to understand that that's one of the ways we can look at what we've been doing here. 
And that every time our mind lets go, when we let go of another mental state, another negative, another way that we're caught in our own negativity and can't see clearly, when we let go, we let go into more and more freedom and more and more joy. And I always think that, so, so a mind that is clinging is not resting in awareness. When our minds are letting go, what's left? Pure awareness. Awareness is here. We just let go into awareness. What's here in the wake of letting go? Awareness. So this is really important that we cultivate the self-compassion and the mindfulness and the awareness and the wisdom and every single thing you've been doing here for the last you know, last week, every single thing you've been doing at your mindfulness slash self-compassion boot camp is because we need it at this time. We need it in these times. The world is calling for each of us to be our biggest and best self, to heal and to step forward and not be afraid and not run away from our strength in these times. This is like, it's an evolutionary imperative to step forward and meet the cries of the world. And this is the work that we're doing here. And various people have been saying that I'm finding an inner strength I didn't know I had. I'm finding a capacity to be with things as they are. I'm finding my heart open in compassionate ways. I'm understanding myself. This is the work, this is what we need. We need people like all of you to step out into the world and meet the suffering. Meet your own suffering, the suffering of the, your families and friends, and the suffering of the world. It's an evolutionary imperative. So I'm going to end with, um, again, one of my favorite, favorite poems from also Diane Ackerman. She says, it's called School Prayer, School Prayer. In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, as a healer of misery, as a messenger of wonder, as an architect of Sorry, an architect of peace. In the name of the sun and its mirrors and the day that embraces it and the cloud veils drawn over it and the uttermost night and the plants bursting with seed and the crowning season of the firefly and the apple, I will honor all life wherever and in whatever form it may dwell, on earth my home and in the mansions of the stars. Let's just pause for a moment and kind of take things in. Take a breath or two. Just invite you to imagine. Actually, let's take a breath and just see how we're feeling. Just imagine the possibility 
of being fully yourself in all your radiant goodness as you live day to day in the world. This evolutionary imperative to be whom we can be, who we can be, We can do it. All of us can do it. I have no doubt. Evolutionary imperative. I like that. So now we are going to... Well, first of all, uh, happy afternoon, community. (laughs) So we are going to um, start breaking silence or start to... um, uh, just start talking in order to um, go into it slowly and to um, feel feel what it's like to speak to each other after being silent for all these days. So one thing that um, Alex actually pointed out to me earlier was was brilliant is that we have been collecting all of our energy, right? I mean, that's what we've been doing with the mindfulness. We have been... Uh, getting stamina and concentration and stability of mind. And what that does is, you know, we're probably holding a lot of energy, a higher level of energy than usual, and it's probably normalized by now after a few days. So when we do break into groups to have a discussion and just to check in with each other and feel the space of coming out of noble silence you might uh, not realize just how much energy that you have. I've uh, seen people break silence and just start screaming at each other. (laughs) Not because they're mad. I mean, they're not mad, but they just have so much built-up energy. And it probably will even sound like they're screaming at each other, even if, you know, you're not, because it's such a... um, you know, a strong experience when we've been in silence for so long. And I'm sure many of you thought, oh my God, I'm going to go into silence and I'm probably going to hate it. And there's probably some of you out there that are saying, can I stay in silence for the rest of my life? <laughs> right? I know, not having... And, and we're going to be doing something now. We're going to be presenting ourselves. You know, we're going to be presenting ourselves. And we realize that it's not that easy of a thing. And in a way, it's not easy and it's a, big, it's a big deal about who we will become in that moment that we tell people who we are. In our tradition, they call it becoming. We will be becoming. So, um, so we want to break up into groups of three or four. Start off with just a moment of silence between each other. Check into the amount of energy that's there and quietly as possible we'll go around in a circle with just a check-in. 
maybe saying um, who you are and where you're from and how you're feeling right now. And maybe just a few words about how the retreat was for you. How about that? And we don't have that much time. I think dinner's in 10 minutes, right? (laughs) But we will continue actually silence. I mean, we will continue uh, our talking meditation um, until after dinner. So you will be free to speak through dinner, but not in the dining hall or in here. Please do feel free to speak outdoors and to catch up with each other and, you know, get to know each other. But um, do it outside of buildings. Please don't do it inside of buildings. How does that sound? Yes? Right, actually, um, Alex had a great suggestion about that too, that it might be very jarring for people. And uh, if it turns out that you just can't take any more, you can actually, this is our sign of, you know, thank you, but I can't do it right now. <laughs> just give them a little bow. Is that what you said? Yeah, keep your gaze down and maybe don't look at people. But uh, we... we but you might try it. I mean, I think it, it, it'll be an excellent exercise. This is talking meditation, right? Talking meditation. Um, I said in one group that um, this wonderful um, Christian uh, leader, Marianne, Mariana Williamson, says everybody is on a spiritual path, but we often don't know in which direction we're walking. So this gives us an opportunity to be just more mindful about relational, relational mindfulness. It's not a little part of our lives, right? It's a pretty big part of our lives. So here's an opportunity to practice it with some strong intention of kindness and checking our energy level and openness. You know, we can water all those seeds right now. So let's bring into groups of three or four. Maybe with someone you haven't met yet. Should we have a people of color group? Yes, let's have a people of color maybe over here. Yes, we're going to talk in here. Do we need an LGBTQI group? Do we want an LGBTQI group? If so, maybe over here. People of color triads and quant... What is for? Yeah. Uh. <laughs> okay. What? Yes, yes, actually that woman right there with the shorts on. Yeah, why don't you grab her? Yeah, the yellow shawl. Yes, yes, just grab her. No, 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 you two should be in your own group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need one more person of color who might be... Hmm? Yeah, they can be fine. That'd be fine now. So you don't have that much time. You only have about a minute each. (laughs) Everybody's excited to talk, boy.
Yeah, that was an excellent point about the energy level. That was a Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.